We run something of a risk this morning with uh, the topic at which we're looking. And in one word, we're talking this morning about sin. I'm aware that it's fashionable among some when a pastor talks about sin to accuse him of being over, overly rigid, and narrow, and puritanical. By the way, I, I wish someone would do some research on the Puritans before they start accusing people of being puritanical. That's actually a compliment. They were some of the most inventive, creative, pure, and hilarious people ever to live on the continent. Remarkable folks. But having said that, I am reminded of Calvin Coolidge, uh, the president in the early 20th century. He was a frequent regular churchgoer, dedicated Christian man. And one morning his wife could not attend church with him, so he went and he came back home after the service and she said, um, how was the service? He said, fine. That's about the longest speech Calvin Coolidge would ever give. He was a man of very few words, but he said, fine. She said, what did the preacher preach on today? He said, sin. And she said, what did he have to say? And Calvin Coolidge said, well, he was against it. (laughs) And after looking at Herod today in Mark chapter 6, you'll understand why. W. Criswell used to say that anytime you find a Herod in the Bible, you find trouble. And he was right. All sorts of heartache, heartbreak, and trouble in the Scripture when you read of Herod. There are actually six Herods mentioned in the Bible. Something of a family title or a royal family title that was given to this family. There's Herod the Great who was ruling when Jesus was born in Matthew 2. And then he died, and his kingdom was divided up into four parts, and his sons ruled. There was Herod Archelaus, and then Herod Philip, mentioned in our text today. Then Herod Antipas, the subject of today. Then there were two grandsons, Herod Agrippa I, mentioned in Acts 12, and Herod Agrippa II, mentioned in Acts 25 and 26. The one we're looking at today executed the man that Jesus said was the greatest man born of women. And that was John the Baptist. And Jesus said that of him in Matthew 11, 11. In our text this morning, Mark 6, verses 14 to 32, we find there are a host of sins that attend Herod Antipas' way. There is first, in verses 14 to 16, heresy, theological heresy heresy. The New Testament is not shy about connecting theological heresy with sin, sinful behavior or sinful attitudes. And often, sin and theological heresy accompany one another. They're usually wed and married to each other. And oftentimes when I hear of someone drifting theologically, then I'm usually not surprised when the other shoe falls. And there's something that attends the way, their way with sinfulness, either a sinful behavior or attitude, something scandalous one way or the other. But verse 14, 
Herod had executed John, and he began to hear of Jesus' ministry, and he reflects his theological heresy, beginning in verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, that's Elijah. The other said, it's a prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John. And the next statement is emphatic, emphatic in the Greek text. Whom I beheaded, he's been raised from the dead. Herod believed in something of a mixture of resurrection and karma, or reincarnation. Now the word karma has become popular used in many places, disassociated from its Eastern religious roots. But I want to say to you, it's not a wise thing for Christians to validate the notion of karma. Karma is a pagan heresy. And uh, resurrection and new birth are nothing like it. But Herod had a mixture of Eastern and Judaistic beliefs. Uh, then we find another sin, usurpation. In other words, he usurps authority where he has no right. He claims authority where he has no right to claim authority. And essentially, he tries to control the content of John's message, of his preaching. And you'll find out why in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, or arrested him, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he married her. Now let me read literally verse 18. Because John had been repeatedly saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, Herod, and Herodias especially, did not appreciate the content of John's message. He was publicly and privately declaiming and denouncing Herod's incest and adultery. And so he stretched the bounds of his authority from government affairs to the pulpit, to the spoken word. I'm sure if he were around today, he would try to do that with the written word as well. In fact, American preachers who have radio programs in Canada have got to censor their sermons and remove from them anything that might offend Canadian ears because you can be sued today for preaching messages that upset the population. And by the way, the government's determine what will upset the population. Stretching the bounds of authority. Then... Immorality, verse 18, John said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He was violating Leviticus 18, 6, 16 and Leviticus 20, 21. So John took the moral law of the Old Testament and imposed it upon this king, this secular king. Herod had married his niece, she was the daughter of a brother, Archelaus, and she married an uncle, Philip. Herod visited this uncle's palace, his brother Philip, and struck up a romance with her and married her. Apparently, he was a better catch than the one she had. So, by the end of the marriage, or by the time the vows were said, Herod was his own uncle and brother-in-law. I suspect that... I hope you got that. 
I suspect that Herod's behavior here may possibly have been inspiration for the bluegrass song, I am my own grandpa. (laughs) Google it. You'll be amused and horrified at the lyrics. So John took the moral law of the Old Testament and preached it and demanded government officials abide by the Word of God. They didn't appreciate it. It does remind me the insightful interview with the very objectionable magazine that Jimmy Carter did back in the 70s. He was asked if he had ever committed adultery. And he said, in my heart I have. And he took that very seriously. And he was right to say so. Then there's the sin of bitterness, verse 19. Therefore Herodias, uh, the niece, the the one-time niece, the one-time sister-in-law, now the wife, And who knows what she is. But therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. She didn't have the authority. She had anger and bitterness in her heart. She wanted to pop his head off. And when she got the chance, she had it removed from his shoulders. She's bitter. John spoke to Herod and worked on him. And Herod appreciated his sermons. Took them, I think, probably as a form of entertainment. But John then was a threat to Herodias' position as queen because he was preaching. And she feared probably that John would get to Herod and he would end the marriage or dissolve it. And she would lose her position. She, John the Baptist threatened her personal interest. And to her, his denunciation was a greater offense than her incest and adultery. Then there's the sin of drunkenness, verse 21 and 22. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. These feasts were stag parties, and it was not unusual for it to look like a raucous, unrestrained bachelor party. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in, and danced, and you're not to think about waltzing or square dancing there, and pleased Herod and those who sat with him. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. I couldn't believe it, but I pastored a church one time when I had a young deacon that was very unrestrained. He was looking to get married, and it was about a week before his wedding. And a friend down the street who was an on-again, off-again church attender asked me to intervene with his future father-in-law because his future father-in-law had a problem with this friend taking my young deacon to a strip club in Raleigh for a bachelor party. And he wanted me to talk the father, future father-in-law into letting him go. And the future father-in-law was willing to let him go if he could go with them. Well, J.W. had figured out there was no way they were going with him. But I don't understand. And 
I looked at the fella and I knew him. We were on a first name basis. We had talked a lot. And I, I was his pastor. And I wanted to look at him and say, hello, have we met? I'm the local Baptist pastor. And you want me to let one of my deacons and to approve one of my deacons attending a strip club. Have you lost your mind? Well, the marriage ended after about six months because she chased him out of the house with a pistol. (laughs) And these were upper middle class persons. Small businessman, school teacher. And right now I feel like singing, I'm my own grandpa. (laughs) Then there's another sin in verse 20. And that is unfinished spirituality. For Herod feared John. He was in awe of John. Knowing that he was a just and holy man. Herod's surrounded by people who will tell him yes to his face, and will not be transparent with him. But when John the Baptist came in, Herod finally had someone with him who would tell him the truth. And people in positions of responsibility oftentimes appreciate people like that. They carry a heavy burden on their shoulder, and they need someone to tell them the truth, and John would. So Herod respected him and held him in awe. He was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. But it's not longer in the, much longer in the story before he's executing him. In other words, Herod appreciated John and his sermons so long as they benefited him and so long as he didn't really have to make a public commitment or commitment at all. In other words, John's sermons were a personal source of gratification to Herod, and John's sermons were apparently a form of entertainment. That's the danger of listening to good preaching. You can be satisfied with it and deceive yourself into thinking that you're okay when you've not made a wholehearted, leather-lunged, full-throttle commitment to the God of the message. So Herod had some spirituality about him, but he wouldn't go all the way with God. Then, verse 22 through 26, we find another sin, and it's reasonable. It's reasonable compromise. Verse 22, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Can you imagine the grief? All the thoughts that go through his mind, how deeply sorry he was at this request, how much he regretted it. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. He wants to be known as a man who keeps his word. Well, that's reasonable, is it not? 
He wants, to know, he wants his nobles to know that they can count on him. He has given an oath and a commitment. He has responsibility for his whole kingdom, as, smart as, it is, as small as it is. He wants the respect of his subordinates because he's going to need it. And if he fails here, it could affect national and international relationships. He has an enormous burden on his shoulders, so he reasonably talks himself into fulfilling this request. Verse 27 is other sin. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Murder. I mean, what's left? I think probably you could imagine this story if you could imagine Vladimir Putin executing Tim Tebow. Or a leader of ISIS or Al-Qaeda executing David Jeremiah. That's what you have here. This is one of the grossest, nauseous, heartbreaking stories in all the pages of the Bible. That's one of the things about the Bible, by the way. The Bible is very realistic. And the story is here because we're liable and vulnerable at this point. Maybe not with the power and the authority of Herod, but to these same challenges. For this reason and many more, George Truitt used to say, sin is the stupidest thing. And it has not helped one person since the Garden of Eden until the end of all things. And Herod teaches us some things about this stupid thing called sin. There are several things. One, sin is powerful. Did you notice in verse 14, it says, Herod is a king. That means he has all the accoutrements of royalty. That means he has authority. That means in some quarters he has adulation. He is is three branches of government wrapped up into one man. He apparently has a pretty good relationship with the Sadducees, the temple leaders. He's on good terms with them. And yet, he could not change his heart. And he could not say no to his own depravity and iniquity. Herod could rule Galilee, and apparently he did a pretty good job in many respects. But he could rule Galilee, and while he could rule Galilee, he could not rule himself. No one has enough power or prestige or strength to rule over sin himself or herself. In fact, I I want to plead with you. If you do not know Christ as Savior, if you're not certain, please listen. Scripture says you're ruled by the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Your heart and affections are set on rebellion and only supernatural intervention with God's grace by His Spirit turning you to Christ is your hope. And each moment you delay, Romans 2.5 says you store up wrath for the day of judgment. Every moment spent outside of Christ is a moment 
that intensifies wrath. One pastor said, I think he's right, because sin is powerful. Everyone is just one step away from stupid. It's true. And so taking necessary guard is profoundly important, and I think Cain learned that. I mean, just on the heels of the Garden of Eden, with two parents that had known perfection, Cain does what to Abel? Well, you know. And he's angry that God has rejected his offering, and before murdering Abel, the Lord comes to him and says, Cain, why, why is your countenance falling? You know, the condition of the heart will always show up on the face. It will. And God pointed that out to Cain. He said, there's something stirring in your heart. There's turmoil there. And it's not that God needed information. God knew. He said, you need to be careful because sin is crouching at the door. It's like a beast waiting for its prey to pass by. So let me ask you, what have you been struggling with? Well, let me say several things to you about your struggles. God now is seeking to interfere and interrupt and intervene. And it may annoy you, and it may not be pleasant, but thank Him for it. God is seeking to intervene. Then you will probably struggle with it again. And then finally, it has a goal. It wants to make you worse. In fact, one evangelist said, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And that leads me to a second truth. Sin is not only powerful, but it's vulnerable. Sin is vulnerable. It is not invincible. It is vulnerable. Now, verses 14 to 20 offer a counter picture or imply a counter picture countermeasures to how Herod could have overcome his temptations. And I want to mention some of these. One, biblical beliefs. Herod believed in this reincarnation karma mixture with resurrection. He would have done a lot better just to embrace the Scripture. He should have. He had the opportunity. He was half Jewish himself. And there's a long history of his people and the Old Testament. But victory begins with biblical Believes. In fact, Job said in Job 11.4, My doctrine is pure, I am clean in your eyes. There's a relationship between pure doctrine and belief and purity of life. Right and wrong is not arbitrary, and God has not hidden it from us. And beginning here, now we need more than right belief, but beginning here, is a great place to start. It's a necessary place to start. And we do need more than right belief, but we can't stand less. We've got to start with right belief. And I have to tell you, let me just tell you personally, one of the things through my Christian life that has kept me and strengthened me is the doctrine of God's knowledge. God is omniscient. There is nothing done in secret. Everything is laid bare before His eyes. And so, anytime temptation has come, there are many of us that remember God knows what's going on. So He knows how to address it. He also knows that if we commit sin, He sees it. God never needs a detective. God never needs an investigation. God never needs a jury. 
And that knowledge has strengthened me and millions upon millions of others to overcome sin. Now, I say that because in the last 15 years, there have been challenges to this very doctrine among so-called evangelicals. Biblical beliefs. But there's a second thing. Saving faith. Herod had the opportunity to hear one of the first century's most premier evangelists in John the Baptist. And he had the opportunity, like others, like Peter and Andrew, to turn to Christ. It was because, it was because John the Baptist pointed out to Jesus, pointed out uh, Jesus to Peter and James and John and Andrew, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, that they turned and began to follow Christ. And if John the Baptist had the power of God on his life to turn someone like Peter to Christ, just imagine what he could have done with Herod. Herod had the opportunity to listen to the first century's premier evangelist and John the Baptist, and yet he was merely entertained. When you turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith, Christ actually comes to live in your life. And He comes with His grace. He comes with His power. He comes with His promises. And He can fill up and satisfy an empty heart so that you don't have to look around you to people and relationships and sinfulness and scandal and embarrassing things and temptation to fill up your soul. Christ is able to do it and you'll need no one else. That's what Christ can do when we place saving faith in Him, when we stop trusting our virtue and stop trusting our own works and repudiate anything keeping us from embracing Him, that's saving faith, and when we have saving faith, Christ comes in. But there's a third thing Herod could have taken advantage of, and that happens to be pure eyes. Sin is vulnerable to biblical beliefs and to saving faith and to pure eyes. Verse 22 is gross. David said in Psalms 101, verse 3, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. Sometimes people are defeated in their pursuit of holiness before they're tempted. Did you know that? Oftentimes they are because they have passed before their eyes something wicked. And the eyes are the window to the soul. What comes to the eyes affects the soul, Jesus said in Matthew 6. And it foments desire. Did you have a problem with spending too much? Well, then stop looking at catalogs and internet sites for shopping. Is lust a problem? Be very, very careful about what you see. Pure, uh, pure eyes could have helped Herod greatly. Then godly relationships. Herod's whole environment, from his marriage to his stepdaughter to his nobles and other leading persons in Galilee, were a detriment to his walk. Herod needed more John the Baptists around him, not fewer. And he could have overcome and been godly. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will suffer destruction. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. Frankly, we need to be careful of the kind of relationship environment that we are in. We've got to be wildly careful with that. A question to ask, is this environment celebrating sin? I mean, that's really what's taking place here at Herod's birthday party. 
There's a sin celebration. And Jesus responds to that in verses 30 to 32, which we'll look at in just a moment. In fact, He departs from the area. And I'd suggest you do so too. Anywhere sin is celebrated. Now that's an important thing. That's an important thing. I do not want Christian people to become so separated they never have contact with lost people. But I don't ever want them to be in an environment where sin is celebrated and exalted as it was at Herod's birthday party. And so that's why, of course, I have, uh, I'll, I'll never attend a uh, strip club. But I don't mind going to a Braves game. You see the difference. One place sin is celebrated, the other one's not. Now that's an obvious illustration. Let me give you another one. Uh, that's why I have no problem. I have no problem watching reruns of Walker, Texas Ranger. In fact, I'm convinced it's required. But I have no problem watching reruns of Walker, Texas Ranger. But I will not risk the book or the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not that strong. No one is. And in fact, the Apostle Paul is very wise with his words in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He said, flee sexual immorality. He didn't say pray about it. Go ahead as you flee, but literally, physically, pick yourself up and run away. You get yourself into a situation where it's sizzling too much and it's sinful, you stand up and say, see you later, maybe never, and leave. <laughs> you physically remove yourself from the place. Why? Because these kinds of temptations are too powerful. They're too much. And God made especially intimacy to be powerful to hold a married couple together. And so, these kinds of experiences are strengthening for a marital relationship, but disastrous beforehand. You need godly relationships. Well, what do I do about my friends that don't know the Lord? I don't want to give up on them, and I don't blame you, and I don't want you to either. But so often, especially what young or struggling Christians do is that you'll have one of them, they've come to Christ, they're new in the faith, or they've rededicated themselves out of a wild party lifestyle, and they want to reach their five or six tight friends. And so one of them, the new Christian or the rededicated Christian, tries to go into their environment and get all five of them at one time, and they're pulled down. I suggest reversing those ratios. Instead... Of one Christian, how about getting four or five from your Sunday school class and go pick off one of these one at a time? Do you see? That's what you do. You reverse the ratio. Don't do it alone. And I will tell you, at Beach Haven Baptist Church, you won't have to walk alone. We won't let you. We don't want you to walk alone. We'll be available to you. Godly relationships. And I, I simply can't say enough about how important it is to marry well someone whose passion is to become like Jesus. We'll have to address that later. Now somebody might say, well, this, this is 
this is heavy, but it gets worse, let me promise you. There's a third statement about sin from Herod. Sin is suicidal. Look at verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they were taught. And He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. Jesus was in this environment, and when He learned from His disciples what had happened to John the Baptist, He left. If you're struggling with temptation and you failed, and God is bothering you about it, that is a very good sign. It hurts. It's annoying. It afflicts your heart. It's evaporated your peace, but it's a good sign. God only disciplines His children. The rest He leaves alone. And that leads me to this conclusion. If you are giving in to temptation, if you're in the midst of it, and God is not interfering with you and bothering you, you need to have the daylight scared out of you. God faithfully disciplines His own children. Hebrews 12 says, those that are spiritually illegitimate, He leaves alone if you don't belong to Him. Jesus left Herod's environment. But the final thing is, sin is forgivable. Look with me in Luke chapter 13. This is not the last we hear of Herod. In fact, the day Jesus was crucified, Herod saw Him. We'll address that later. But in Luke chapter 13, there's another episode involving Herod with Jesus. Beginning in verse 31, the uh, Pharisees come to Jesus. And don't think that all the Pharisees were rotten to the core and evil and bad. They were all rigid. But some of them came to Christ and they formed a significant part of the church of Jerusalem to begin with. Verse 31, On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here. Herod wants to kill you. Now, we don't know if that's true or not. We don't know that Herod ever threatened to kill Jesus. I think maybe the Pharisees are inventing this. Because look at Jesus' response. He said to them, Go tell that fox. It's a negative reference. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I shall be perfected. So Jesus convicts Herod of his sin. You're like a fox. You do with God's people what a fox will do to a hen house. So Jesus convicts him of his sin. But then he gives him a cryptic reference to his kingdom and to his lordship, and to his resurrection. And Jesus had done this with Nicodemus as well. Nicodemus was a know-it-all, and so was Herod. And so Jesus used confusing religious terminology to remind him, you really don't know it all. Sometimes it's entirely appropriate to make terms simple for unbelievers. Sometimes when they're know-it-alls, it's best to give them cryptic, confusing religious terminology so they will feel a need to learn more. 
And that's what Jesus does here, and it's what he did with Nicodemus. He says here in verse number 32, I cast out demons, you can't cast out yours. You don't have that power, but I do. I perform cures today. I'm manifesting the kingdom. And tomorrow, and the third day, I shall be perfected. In other words, my gospel and my role will be perfected and completed with my resurrection from the dead. Well, Herod would hear this and not know what they're talking about and would start asking questions, which reveals his ignorance, which is part of his sin. He should know better because John the Baptist had been preaching and teaching with him. So at the very end here, Jesus sees to it that Herod gets the gospel of Christ. And and what's remarkable, did you see in verse number 32? Look at it again. Verse 32. I want to tell you something about the Greek text here that is remarkable. And he said to them, go tell. Go tell. Go is an aorist participle. Tell is an aorist imperative command. This is the same construction and some of the same language Jesus uses in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples. He would pick that up again with the Great Commission. So he's telling these Pharisees, go tell Herod the kingdom gospel of my resurrection Get the word to him. Why in the world would the Lord do that? Because even a man like Herod is not beyond the forgiveness of God, and neither are you. God is willing through his Son to forgive sin. In other words, there is more grace in God than there is guilt in you, and thank God it's been paid for with the death penalty, by the death penalty, in Jesus Christ at the cross, and certified and validated by His resurrection from the dead. Heaven accepts the cross because of the resurrection, and I sure hope that you will today as well. There can be forgiveness of people, any, any person like Herod. Let me ask you something. Some very important questions. Are you persuaded of your guilt before God today? Do you believe you stand guilty before Him? Are you convinced that Christ is your only hope? Are you convinced? Do you believe only His death and resurrection are your hope? Are you willing to cry out to Him today and turn to Him and repudiate anything that keeps you from Christ today? If so, God has a promise for you in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God doesn't give you a enough pardon merely to cover your sin. He gives enough pardon and grace to completely submerge it. He goes far beyond what you need because of the death and the resurrection of His Son. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And when we do, I want to ask you to come. Staff will be here in the front. And God wants to introduce you to His pardon and His mercy and His grace. And He'll lavish it upon you. And the church would say amen from this pulpit if it had the opportunity because you're sitting amongst people who've given themselves to Christ and found Jesus Christ strong in every conceivable way. You come. Staff will be here waiting for you. Others of you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. God wants you here. There's no more need to delay. You come. 
God's moving some of you to follow Christ in baptism. And God is moving some of you, perhaps, to ministry or missionary service. But I want to ask you to quickly stand with me. I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask you to come. Dear God, we thank you that when we've been lousy, you've been love. When we've been failures, you've been forgiving. When we've been miserable, you've been merciful. And I want to pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would transform souls today to the extent that they'll trust and follow only Jesus Christ and go public for His matchless name. Would you do that now and work in us in that way? And when we finally conclude the worship today, that all souls, all hearts will be yielded to Him and you will have from us precisely what you created this day for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together and you come. You come.